Hello and welcome to Hey I Like, the podcast where we talk about all the things that make our neurodivergent brains go bonkers. Uh, I am your host Jess and I am joined today by my lovely friend to talk about a very very cool topic. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners at home? Hello, I am Tom. I am here to talk about Tolkien. Yay! Oh, Tolkien is so great. I have so much to say about Tolkien. We better get started then. <laughs> yeah. Where to begin? Yes. There is, oh, there is so much to say. So, um, I think, first of all, we got to talk about just how crazy influential Tolkien is. Like, I want to get a lot into the details of like the themes of Tolkien and why he wrote what he wrote and all of this stuff and 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 all of the really interesting things there. But first, I just really want to set the tone. Tolkien is ridiculously influential in fantasy, especially, but really like throughout a lot of other stuff as well. Um, but when it comes to fantasy, I mean, the number of things that Tolkien may not have come up with, but did codify. Uh, did, you know, make the way that we think about them is massive. I mean, hobbits are obviously a big one. I mean, find a fantasy world now that isn't uh, like, oh, yeah, we should have some kind of like small race that's basically human, but a bit different. Like you you absolutely can, obviously, because that's loads of fantasy. But it's like much, much more common. I mean, again, D&D like has halflings. And like, again, that's something that Tolkien... There is, if I believe correctly, one source pre-Tolkien which mentions hobbits. Um, yes. Yeah, but other than that, like, again, Tolkien is is massively, again, popularising them as an idea um, and making them a thing, and now, you know, they exist in fantasy. Um, and then other things, like, again, the way he depicts elves and dwarves. Elves and dwarves existed before Tolkien, but never as such defined races. Um, and certainly elves especially, you know, a lot of these ideas of like these tall, um, fair elves and the idea of wood elves and high elves and these different concepts about, again, how they worked. Again, that is massively, massively influential because, you know, before that elves and dwarves were both just sort of like a mixed with the fantasy creatures of like fairies and things where they weren't like really defined. They weren't really a people. They were just like things you know again if you read like old norse stuff dwarves and elves like appear but they are very much just like plot point characters they are yeah. not like <laughs> you know this is a dwarf dwarves are like this and elves are, like there's not there's not all that build up of the culture and all that stuff which is very present in tolkien and which carries on today um but then you get things like ents walking trees super common again in fantasy now you see them all of the time orcs uh, again massively popularized and my favorite version of this to show exactly how influential tolkien was tolkien mixed up hobgoblins he thought hobgoblins were larger goblins hobgoblins pre-tolkien were smaller goblins hob meant smaller um, yeah and now hobgoblins are universally larger goblins <laughs> because of tolkien tolkien makes one mistake and it is now fantasy canon it is now how that thing is and you know it's just incredibly influential the way he depicts uh, the dragon in the hobbit as well is massively influential in how we imagine dragons yes it draws upon other previous conceptions about dragons of course but 
a lot of the charismatic um, nature of dragons comes from Smaug, at least again in, in Western fantasy stuff. Obviously, again, there are plenty of charismatic dragons and other stuff. But again, the, the prevalence of them today in, Tol in, in fantasy in the West is very much influenced by Tolkien. And, you know, dark lords and magic items of, of power that need to be destroyed in the place from whence they get, like magic glowing swords. I mean, I could go on and on about how ridiculously influential Tolkien is on the fantasy genre, but it's ridiculously. Yeah, I love how you managed to go through this whole list of things that make Tolkien really influential, but you haven't mentioned the giant spiders. Oh my god, of course, giant spiders from that one spider that bit Tolkien one time. Yes! Like, yeah, spiders, that's crazy. And now, yes, again, giant spiders are just the thing. Like, you expect them in fantasy, you're like, oh yeah, giant spiders, of course, that makes sense. Because of Tolkien! I mean, just everything. Uh, uh, I mean, like, the, the conception of wizards as well as these, like, old men with staffs. Yes, that absolutely draws upon older things of Merlin and of Odin and of a whole bunch of different sort of magic users. But very specifically in Western canon, again, there is a lot of influence from Tolkien's conception of wizards, of these orders, this order of wizards, and, you know, wizards be, being wise um but you know sort of taking quite a quite a backseat role to a lot of these things and again it's just like there is so much going on with Tolkien yes <laughs> oh. it's just amazing how much there is of Tolkien um and how much I mean Mithril Mithril is again something you will find in fantasy time and time again or sing similar to Mithril and again Tolkien is there like yeah I, I did this um oh I mean even stuff like the grudge between dwarves and elves is something that is like super super common in fantasy these days you have a dwarf and an elf they probably won't get along every race as like a concept like obviously race as a concept existed before but they are very prevalent in fantasy these days in a way that is kind of talking. <laughs> no, people would be like, like maybe like ghosts and stuff would be popular without without Tolkien, but calling them wraiths and like again, like nah, that's that's very Tolkien. And you know, you see it time and time and time again. Um, so many of these things come from Tolkien, and it's absolutely amazing. So that was the first thing I wanted to make very clear was Tolkien, super 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 influential. Oh, of course. And but like, I feel, I feel like a lot of the time, fantasy authors who kind of say like, oh, I took my inspiration from Tolkien, you read it, and it's like, you just did not understand the themes of well, Tolkien's work at all. <laughs> I think as we go in, because I'm going to talk a lot about some of these themes, I think one of the big things that happens with Tolkien because of this massive influence is a lot of people get Tolkien wrong because they have yes. read the bad imitators who did not fully get Tolkien's themes and have copied a lot of the artifacts, a lot of the a lot of the surface level stuff without getting the rest of it. Um, I mean, perfect example of this is dwarves having a grudge against elves. Yes, there absolutely is that historical grudge in Tolkien, but they are also very often allies. Like they are, they are so often allies against other evils. Um, they have very little fighting amongst themselves. What fighting they do have is greatly uh, seen as you know, you know, a real tragedy that these that these groups came into conflict. And there is also great friendship between groups of dwarves and elves. Again, historically, like it very much depends who you're talking to about whether 
dwarves and elves like get along because it depends on which dwarves and which elves um, yeah like again and that's another oh god such a big thing for tolkien races are not homogenous um <laughs> and again that's something where it's like oh they're very homogenous in a lot of other things um but yes i mean i think that's a good space actually to move on then to to an area which i think is is so important to tolkien which is free will um and the way in which he uh thinks of characters because yes. tolkien and this is partly influenced by his religion which i'm sure i'll go into a bit more detail later is a big believer in free will in being able to make choices and you know of pressures and things and and, and, and lies and all this stuff and, and and other people's wills you know all affecting that but at the end of the day you can choose and choosing to do good choosing to fight against evil choosing to show mercy choosing to be generous choosing all of these things that's an incredibly important thing to do and there isn't this sort of inherent evil from the very top morgoth melkor um and and, and sauron obviously in lord of the rings to the very bottom ted ted sandy man and and worm tongue and and these you know very minor sort of servant type characters who are who are doing some mild evil but still you know some evil they are choosing to do these things and yes there are pressures and things and all that stuff and that does amelioration of the evil you know Wormtongue, i think in the narrative is seen as less evil than saruman because he is much more pushed towards the things he's doing than saruman yeah. is. but you still have that choice you still absolutely have that choice of what you're doing and very very interesting in how it applies to the evil characters you know there's lots to be said about sauron and saruman being evil characters who have chosen evil and are given sauron not so much in in the lord of the rings um for, for a variety of reasons but saruman is absolutely given chances to repent and stop being evil he is consistently shown mercy by gandalf and frodo um and he persists in his evil actions and in the end his evil actions lead to his death because his cruelty towards Wormtongue leads to Wormtongue killing him that's very important but an area which i i i really love and which we'll go into a bit about race in a minute so many things i'm just going to hint at until we get to um, <laughs> is how tolkien always describes as making their choices and how again you know sauron and saruman and stuff can influence them absolutely but they do still have that opportunity to make some choices um and you know this isn't always expanded upon within the books because you know it's not necessarily the place and space for it but you know in in other times you know he talks about well yeah not all of the eastlings and haradrim to help sauron these choices uh that that various evil characters make gollum is another great example um because you know gollum series of incredibly important choices that affect the fate of, of middle earth and, and what happens with the with the one ring um and in the end dies making the choice to betray frodo and try and take the ring and a very interesting and it's again it links to a, a a theme of tolkien's that like evil destroys itself like evil weakens itself um evil hurts itself it hurts other people as well and that's bad but it also makes itself worse. You know, Sauron gives up power into the ring and thus without it is weakened. And, you know, you get things from the Silmarillion of Sauron no longer being able to take a fair form after having been killed uh, in the fall of Numenor um, or, you know, loads and loads of different 
forms of evil coming back to hurt the evildoer. And again, I think that's a really important theme of, of the Lord of the Rings is that good, but it can't help the evil. Even if the evil people win, they will undermine themselves. And that is, I think, a very good point to make. It's something I say a lot about um, in, in, in modern stuff about, about fascism, that fascism is a self-defeating ideology, that it always collapses because it's just a really bad ideology that, that cannot sustain itself. And, you know, again, I'm not saying Tolkien's got any sort of allegories or stuff things, but I think, again, Tolkien is hit upon the very real fact that, yeah, being evil generally leads to bad stuff happening to everyone, including you. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's not a winning strategy. Um, it's not like people are going like, oh, well, I won't be evil because, you know, that'd be good for the world. I mean, yes, there is an element of that, of, of you know, I'm sacrificing things for other people. But there's also a big element of this is just bad. Like, it will always turn bad for you. That's one of the big things about using the ring is like, it will always end up turning bad for you. And, you know, I think I think that's a very important point because evil is evil and that's enough. But it's also stupid. <laughs> like all these evils, um, you know, racism, sexism, uh, transphobia, um, y you know, uh, pollution, all these things, they're evil and that should be enough to stop them. But they're also just stupid. Um, they're also just really stupid. And again, Tolkien's not necessarily talking about any of those things, but the general concept is very much there in his work and I think carries on very well to this day. It reminds me of something that uh, I believe C.S. Lewis said about evil and good, which is good people know about both evil and good, evil people know about neither, which again seems like something that again I'm like, yeah, no, I feel like, <laughs> I mean they're friends so probably um, yeah. Tolkien agreed with because this idea of like evil is blind and foolish as well as just being cruel and bad gonna move on to another aspect of free will and how it interacts with something which is quite controversial within Tolkien fandoms and the sort of general things which is race and racism in Tolkien ah. <laughs> and I want to start off by saying as people cannot see me obviously audio format um I am white and so you know I am aware that what I'm saying does come with that baggage um uh, that 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 viewpoint um but I do think like you know I have talked to other people who aren't uh, white about this stuff and you know it's not in a not in a I've got black friends way but in a like I I do think this is reasonable to say in regards to sort of the general attitude of Tolkien towards race a lot of the poor ways race is handled in Tolkien do seem very much to be cases of unfortunate implications and unintended consequences rather than give racism which to be clear is still bad and like is not okay to to be doing and people should like work to be better and all of this stuff but is also very different and i think that's one of the reasons why tolkien still holds up fairly well despite some of those again less than stellar uh ways of talking about some of this stuff is because while again some of the terminology and some of the inferences uh about these things are bad the overall messages the overall themes and so they can still hold up um, yeah. it, that thing that I say again, you know, people who have the right attitude, but the wrong terminology are way better than people who have the wrong attitude, but the right terminology, you know, yes. <laughs> like, uh, and I feel like Tolkien very much falls into some of those things, you know, like, obviously, you know, he's a product of his time and his nation and the imperialism and colonialism and race, race racism that exists, but 
again, going back to this idea of free will and stuff, no, he's very clear basically any time that men turn up, uh, and by men I mean, you know, humans, um, that they have free will and are not really different from each other in any sort of real way. Like there are differences between them, you know, there are differences in their culture and their physiques and all these things, but they are all men going to the Silmarillion very briefly. They are children of Iluvata. They have free will to decide their fate within the bounds of the earth and then move on. That is all equal. They are absolutely the same in that, which also ties into his religious views, you know, Catholicism, uh, for all that it gets a lot of uh, stick for, ha for how it behaves sometimes, has held for a long time that there is one human race, all part of uh, God's creation. And yeah, Tolkien very much does have stuff that carries on with that. I mean, yes, it is true that his heroes do tend to be, that is certainly, but again, if you read the books, there are absolutely other things in, in for example, in the appendices, appendices, there is discussion of how the worried that marrying into the non-Numenorean races of men would affect their longevity and their power and, 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 and you know, how, how, how strong and noble they were. Um, and it is explicitly called out that, in fact, the reverse happened, that when they started marrying into, say, the Rohirrim, it had no effect on, on their decline um, and actually, if anything, uh, slowed it. And again, I think that's a really important kind of point. And I think perhaps one of the uh, most important things here for Tolkien and race that I think speaks both to the problems with Tolkien, but also the pros, is... Um, as people have commented, you know, a lot of the ways he describes orcs especially are language that could also be used to describe a lot of, there's lots of different things in terms of, you know, broad noses and eye shapes and skin colour and stuff, which is very much related to racist language about people of colour, even to this day. Um, And I think it's very telling because Tolkien uh, is actually, I spoke this at one point, and has a, a quote in which he's talking about the way that orcs look. And he's saying, um, I can't remember the exact quote, um, and I'm not going to use it because it does contain some racist language anyway, but he basically says, yes, they uh, orcs would look uh, more like people from sort of Southeast Asia and thus less lovely, which I think, again, speaks very much to Tolkien's internal prejudices and things that like, oh, these are like uglier features and stuff, except that he follows that up with to Western eyes. Um, and I think that's very important because it is an acknowledgement that that is not a universal, that is not an objective. Yeah. I was writing this book and I was thinking about what I and my readers would think was, uh, you know, more, more monstrous, more off-putting. Um, and yeah, I did that. And like, Obviously, that still absolutely sucks for people who look like that. Of course it does. That's still, like, based in racism and, and all of this stuff. But it's very much more, again, as I said, the unfortunate implications and unintended consequences of these things, rather than, oh yeah, orcs are like Southeast Asian people. Um, and a lot of authors who copy Tolkien, who do way 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 worse with this who oh, of again I, I 
for you know making races homogenous they do that as well with human cultures where they're like all of these people are this and all of these people are this absolutely not the case in tolkien there are rohirrim and uh numenorians who are absolutely terrible and there are uh easterners who are good i mean again in the silmarillion uh the uh there is a specific bit in which some eastern uh men come over to uh the uh good side fighting against, at that point, Morgoth. Um, and these are not the same Easterlings as are in uh, The Lord of the Rings, but importantly, some of them do indeed betray the elves and the and the, and the men of the West um, and turn against them. However, some of them absolutely stay loyal and indeed die fighting those men that betrayed them. Um, and like, yeah, like that's kind of exactly how it pretty much always is in Tolkien. Like you do not get that homo homogeneity of all of these people are this way and none of them do good stuff. Like, absolutely rubbish. So rubbish. Um, and that's really important. I think, again, going back to the free will, there's some incredibly important quotes um, that I want to bring up from uh, Lord of the Rings, which I think are because of how they um, impact the way in which we are made to think about uh, these so-called, as it were, evil men. Now, the first of these is from uh, the Two Towers, um, when they are uh, waiting uh, for dawn, and the orcs and Urukai from Saruman are outside, but as are the wild men of the hills, the Dunlandings. And uh, if you listen to this quote, I think, you know, I'll talk about it more afterwards, but you can tell the men of Dunland are not depicted as just like wholly evil here, I think. Um, so this is uh, what they are saying. Um, but these creatures of Isengard, these half-orcs and goblin men that the foul craft of Saruman has bred, they will not quail at the sun, said Gambling, and neither will the wild men of the hills. Do you not hear their voices? I hear them, said Aemer, but they are only the scream of birds and the bellowing of beasts to my ears. Yet there are many that cry in the Dunland tongue, said Gambling. I know that tongue. It is an ancient speech of men, and once was spoken in many western valleys of the mark. Hark, they hate us, and they are glad, for our doom seems certain to them. This king, the king, they cry, we will take their king. Death to the foregoyle, death to the strawheads, death to the robbers of the north. Such names they have for us. Not in half a thousand years have they forgotten their grievance, that the lords of Gondor gave the mark to Earl the Young, and made alliance with him. That old hatred Saruman has inflamed. They are a fierce folk when roused. They will not give way now for dusk or dawn until Theoden is, is taken or they themselves are slain. Um, and so that's the quote. And immediately, one thing I want to point out is, regardless of anything else that's being said about them, they are clearly brave. You know, they are brave, fierce folk who will not give up until uh, Theoden is taken or they themselves are slain. Um, but also, and admittedly, you know, this is somewhat subjective. To me, it sounds like they have given a very good reason to be angry at... The Rohirrim, you know, um, and while you know there are certainly questions about you know whose land uh, it, it 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 you know should should be and all these things, um, Tolkien you know doesn't necessarily get into too much detail about all this stuff, um, but those are very real grievances. Those are those are at the very least grievances. You know, they're not doing this evil for evil's sake. They have grievances, and whether or not you agree with those grievances, that certainly puts a different perspective on what they are doing. Um, and I also think that, again, when you're talking about something like Tolkien, this 
idea of like oh this is like an ancient thing is often used to show it as you know important and worthy of respect you know that happens a lot with with you know oh this is ancient Numenorean this is ancient Elven you know these these things these 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 past things that we have now lost and and, and we can't do now um, and this Dunland tongue is an ancient speech of men um, and again I think that gives a certain amount of not necessarily respect to to the men of Dunland but again a a a, a different tone to their behavior and to how they are um, and indeed later when uh, the battle of helm's deep is over uh, while the men of rohan are, are buried in a, a big burial mound um, the men of dunland are buried in their own burial mound further off um, and again that shows much more respect for them as people um, than you might expect from uh, again a lot of the fantasy imitators who are like no these are the evil men um, so again i think it is very telling of Tolkien's general attitude towards people um, and that in general it's less that the people of, of, of Gondor or Rohan are inherently better. Being more powerful they have a higher peak and a lower fall. Um, when the Numenorians, again from Silmarillion or, 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 or indeed even in the, Lock, the Lord of the Rings with, with Denethor, when they fall they do some really really evil stuff. Um, again, uh, yeah. worth noting again, because you know this is the line that Aragorn comes from, and Faramir, and all of these characters who are you know seen as like great heroes and, and wonderful. Um, the Numenorians, when they go evil, they go super evil, committing uh, mass uh, executions um, and sacrifices, uh, and uh, being uh, absolute warmongers and slavers and pillaging all the lands and all of this stuff. They are they are so so evil, um, and like. Yeah, and that's and that's the descendants of the good guys in the Silmarillion and the ancestors of the good guys in the Lord of the Rings, and they do some terrible, terrible stuff, worse than anything that is described being done by the Dunlandings or the Easterlings or the Haradrim, um, because they have that choice. They can choose to do evil just as they can choose to do good. Yeah. Um, and then I'm going to go to the Return of the King because there is a there are two sections of quotes which I really want to find. Um, actually, technically three, but two of them are very close together, which are all super, uh, I think, telling about the way in which these people uh, are depicted by the narrative, you know, these, these so-called evil men um, and how they are, you know, again, treated. Uh, and so Theoden um, and the Rohirrim, they, they, they are marching forward, they are riding forth against the foes outside of Gondor, and they are uh, slaying many of them. Uh, and at this point, uh, it mentions the Haradrim. It says, Southward, beyond the road, lay the main force of the Haradrim, and there their horsemen were gathered about the standard of their chieftain. And he looked out, and in the growing light he saw the banner of the king, and that it was far ahead of the battle, with few men about it. Then he was filled with a red wrath, and shouted aloud, and displaying his standard, black serpent upon scarlet, he came against the white horse and the green, with a great press of men, and the drawing of the scimitars of the Southrons was like a glitter of stars. And reading that that could easily have been said of the good people in fact right before in Theoden's speech to uh the Rohirrim um in inspiring them to it um he is yelling for uh fire and slaughter uh, a sword day a red day um you know you can see a lot of the similarities between the ways you know they're both like filled with like 
this 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 fury and 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 and, and drive to, to to fight um and equally the, 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 the especially this last line the drawing of the scimitars of the south ones was like a glitter of stars that is i think possibly exactly the way that tolkien also describes elves drawing their weapons um in in, in parts of the silmarillion um like that is again not portraying them as necessarily good of course but certainly as something to 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 respect you know there's certainly something there that is more than just uh, denigrating these people um they are brave and they go in to 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 fight um and and they look very noble doing so um and indeed at the very end of the uh war uh of this battle um after it's very clear that um you know the the again the the men of the west the good side has won um there is this little bit about the end of the fighting hard fighting and long labor they had still for the southrons were bold men and grim and fierce in despair and the easterlings were strong and war hardened and asked for no quarter and so in this place place and that by burned homestead or barn upon hillock or mound under wall or on field still they gathered and rallied and fought until the day wore away that's again pretty powerful language to be speaking about these evil men um they are you know bravely standing in 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 fights which they you know are not going to win um and asking no quarter and again you know that's not necessarily good it's not showing them necessarily in a in a in a, in a light of you know generosity or mercy or any of these things which Tolkien does does value a fair bit but it's certainly more complex than again you might expect if you've only been exposed to Tolkien imitators um and there is one last section and this is perhaps my favorite section when it comes to showing the way in which men make their choices and very much not actually uh you know serve well no they are servants but they are not fully um just doing whatever sauron says that they have their own will and their own power um there's a few uh, uh well there's this there is this moment here where um it is i think very very important um because it is just after the uh ring has been destroyed um and the men of the west aragorn and all his troops are outside the black gates and they are ready they have just drawn themselves up to fight a last desperate stand just to distract sauron long enough for the ring to be destroyed um but luckily for them the ring indeed is destroyed and this is the aftermath the captains bowed their heads and when they looked up again behold their enemies were flying and the power of mordor was scattering like dust in the wind as when death smites the swollen brooding thing that inhabits their crawling hill and holds them all in sway ants will wander witless and purposeless and then feebly die so the creatures of sauron orc or troll or beast spell enslaved ran hither and thither mindless and some slew themselves or cast themselves in pits or fled wailing back to hide in holes and dark lightless places far from hope but the men of ruin and of harad easterling and southron saw the ruin of their war and the great majesty and glory of the captains of the west and those that were deepest and longest in evil servitude hating the west and yet were proud men and bold were men proud and bold in their turn now gathered themselves for a last stand of desperate battle now i think this is really really powerful because one again they are making their choice sauron is gone they have like and they are going to lose 
And I especially like the, the phrasing, in their turn now gather themselves for a last stand of desperate battle, because that is explicitly drawing a parallel between what they are doing here and what the good forces were doing moments ago before the destruction of the ring. And I don't think you can draw those kind of parallels without suggesting a certain amount of, again, respect and, and um, again, choice, you know, that, that power of choice, that power of free will um, behind men. Um, that I think, again, is, is really important and is something that Tolkien really struggles with with the orcs. Um, he goes back and forth a lot about what the orcs are and how they are because he, again, partly because he's Catholic, cannot really conceive of the idea of a being with free will being inherently irredeemably evil. Um, and what he eventually seems to settle on is the idea that orcs are pushed by Sauron's will to do evil and uh, the society they grow up in pushes them to be evil, and any that would resist that and would not uh, fall into evil like this are killed. And so functionally, all of the orcs that you see are indeed evil, but that is as a product of multiple layers that push them to be evil. And again, hell of a lot more complicated than a lot of uh, imitators would say, I think. And so, yeah, that's the element that I really want to get across about Tolkien and, and free will and how it interacts with with all these racial good things because he is really really pushing you know people make their choices and those choices can be good or evil but people make them people people have free will and can choose and thus no one is inherently worse or better um about it no one no one is more um inherently able to go oh no I will never uh, do, you know, evil stuff. I'm, I'm only going to be good. Um, that's not, again, the way that these things work. Um, people are absolutely capable of true for, for all of the, as I say, thinking races of, of Middle Earth. Dwarves, elves, men, even the, the Valor and Maya who are, are capable of doing evil and becoming evil. I mean, that's what Saruman does, that's what Sauron does, that's what, even before the creation of the universe, Morgoth did. And so, yeah, I do think there are absolutely problems with the way, you know, people in Tolkien are written about in terms of race and all this stuff, but I don't think it's as bad as some people like to make out, because, again, I think it is much more complex a lot of the surface level imitators would have you believe about Tolkien. You know, one of his big things is, hey, anyone can do evil, and anyone can do good. So yeah, that's that's what I wanted to say about Tolkien and free will, because I think it's very important. Um, yes. And I think that also leads us into Tolkien and, and religion a little bit, because obviously a lot of Tolkien's stuff is heavily influenced by the fact that, and that has a lot of impacts on him. As I've said, one of the big ones is free will. He believes creatures have free will and can choose good, and that that's really important. But there's other aspects to it as well, because there's things like the way in which there's always some hope of, you, you know, again, people consistently are given the chance to give up their evil ways. I mean, I didn't talk about it too much, but both the Dunlendings and the Haradrim and, and in the end of both those battles that I was talking about, the after they have been clearly defeated, many of them surrender and are treated reasonably well. Like they are allowed to surrender. They are allowed to go home without their weapons and stuff. And again, that's really important. And again, the men of Dunling were buried properly. The orcs, by contrast, were, were burned in a heap. Um, and again, like I think it's very important is, is you know, they are they are being treated with 
you know, to, you know, not have more bloodshed and violence. Saruman and Grimer and a whole bunch of other minor, like, evilly characters are not do the evil that they're doing. That is, again, I think very important to Tolkien, is that, you know, you do not write people off about it. You know, you do not say this person cannot ever do good again. This is a very big thing with Gollum. With Gollum, it's a very big thing. This is such an awful creature. Bilbo should have killed him. And Gandalf is very clear. Well, maybe, but he may yet have a chance to do good and do not be so quick to, to pass out death to people. Very important and ends up being key to the destruction of the ring. Yeah, I think, you know, you can obviously see some of those religious uh, aspects of Tolkien, but I don't think, you know, I know some people talk about it in sort of allegorical fashions and things like that. And, and Tolkien hates allegory and it's more that his philosophy, which is obviously influenced by his religious views, comes through also in his works, you know? Yeah. Because um, this is the thing that, like, he hated allegory and he was so adamant that there was no allegory in any of his works. And then people go and read it and they're like, well, this is an allegory. And it's like, no, it's it's not. Not everything is an allegory. Sometimes just the stuff that you think and the stuff that you've experienced influences your writing. Exactly. And, I'm gonna and go that's on okay. <laughs> World Wars as well. But one of the things I'm going to say is... It's like saying, oh, this food that he's describing, because he ate that food, like he, it's like, you know, he describes a lot of food in Lord of the Rings, sounds delicious. And it's like, yes. he probably ate food like that at some point, and that made it easier to describe it. Um, and it's like saying, and therefore Lord of the Rings is an allegory for lunch. <laughs> like, like, no, obviously it's drawn from Tolkien's experiences of eating, but that doesn't make it an allegory about the eating that he's done. Um, that's not the way it works. Inspiration. No. And, 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 you know, experience and, and, you know, drawing on these things, these themes and stuff that you yourself have belief in or, or feelings about and all this stuff, that does not make it an allegory. <laughs> but yeah, no, so poor, 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 poor Tolkien. The, where I'm going to go real deep, because what I really like, is Tolkien's experiences of war and how they come through in The Lord of the Rings. Because I think this is perhaps the very biggest one, which both the movies and a lot of the imitators screw up. Yes. I wrote about this in my personal statement when I was applying for undergrad. So. <laughs> You're amazing. I love that so much. A great personal statement as well. So what about you? Well, you see Tolkien. His experience is like, are you in any way related to Tolkien? Nope. Just like him. Um, but no. Um, so for people who are not aware of Tolkien's experience of war, Tolkien was in the trenches during World War One. Yes, he was. And indeed, there's a quote from him about this, which is, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something along the lines of, by 1945, all but one of my close friends were dead. Um, they made a whole and... movie about it. <laughs> yeah, it's... Dev like, he is incredibly affected by the war. World War II, he, he is older, he's no longer on the front lines, although he does um, have some contributions in co-breaking and things. But yes, his, his main interaction is with World War One. When people talked about World War Two and World War One as allegories for Lord of the Rings, one of the things that Tolkien said, which I think makes very clear his opinions on the wars and how they went, was, no, if they had been allegories, the ring would definitely have been used against Sauron, and then Saruman would have developed his own ring, and there would have been great bloodshed and and war between all of the peoples and hobbits would have been made slaves by both sides and it would have just been awful yeah tolkien is not a fan of war tolkien again from you know the readings believes that yes yeah, sometimes you do have to fight 
against evil actively, and sometimes that does require violence, I think. He does not like the actual war. He hates war so, so, so much, which is why a character like Frodo doesn't do much fighting. He, does, he is not a hero because he kills, literally, I cannot think of a single person that Frodo actually kills in the story, and certainly none that are important. And in fact, what's super important is the fact that Frodo shows mercy. Um, <laughs> that is super, super important to the whole fact that Gollum is there and that Gollum is then able, when Frodo does at the very end fail, is able to, you know, unintentionally destroy the ring. That's really, really important. And later when they go back and they find the Shire, Frodo is very keen on there being as little bloodshed as possible and does not wield a sword against anyone during the uh, fight to uh, reclaim the Shire from Saruman and his... And again, that's really, really important. Um, it is! And again, one of my, one of my favourite, one of my favourite sections to show this is... There is one section in The Return of the King where Pippin and one of the young boys he is friends with from Gondor are watching all of the outlying lords and captains of the realm of Gondor come to Minas Tirith to help defend it. And it describes, in the way that Tolkien does in wonderful details, all of these people, their clothing and their types of weapons and stuff about them. And then a few chapters later, at the end of the Battle of Pelennor Fields outside Minas Tirith, it talks about how almost all of them died. Powerful, I think, to have that, to have these 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 heroic figures, you know, coming forth and no, they all died. They they yeah. like and specifically, again, the way it's phrased as um they will never return home and they died and people mourned them and it's terrible that they died. You know, they they don't, they, they die, you know, in ways that aren't like, you know, cowardly or anything, you know, they, they die fighting and stuff, but they don't die doing any like great massive deed in the way of like slaying the Witch King or anything like that. They just die in the fighting yeah. um, in re very normal ways. And it even says, you know, no few had fallen hero or nameless and no song has been written to tell of all of them, which again, just gets the, the scope of the loss. And again, I think that's, very much going to be informed by Tolkien's experiences in war, um, in that he knows so many people die. Good, bad, doesn't matter. So many people die. And there is so little you can do about it. And again, Tolkien hates war so much. There is a reason why one of the big differences, again, between the good guys and the bad guys is how much mercy the good guys show when they win wars. The bad guys uh, brutalize and destroy and, and, and execute prisoners and, and mutilate people and all this stuff. And the good guys their people and let them go home. Um, and that is the major dividing line between them. Um, and some of this might be because of the way in which orcs are kind of, again, within the books themselves, sort of presented as irredeemably evil. But some of it, I think, also might be Tolkien's own, again, experience of war. The heroes are kind of brutal and, and bloody in a lot of points. Um, you know, they, they are especially um, against orcs, but, but against some of the men as well, they are quite bloodthirsty. Um, they, you, you know, you've got Gimli and Legolas's competition uh, to see who can kill the most orcs uh, at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, and you've got, again, the way in which there is a lot of, of, of anger and wrath in a lot of the uh, actions 
of, of Aima or, or Theoden or um, various other figures, you know, who are who are very much shown as being, you know, you know, filled with filled with anger and rage against their enemies. Um, and again, I think that's telling of, of Tolkien's experiences of war because even good people in war are violent, you know, yes. and that has an effect on them. You cannot you cannot remain sort of fully impartial about about the violence that you are doing um and you normalize it and you and you make it a thing about anger and hate and all of these things um and again i think very telling um tolkien's comments on world war one that we were all orcs during world war one um that there was not a good side um that that everyone was just brutal and, and terrible um and again very telling of Tolkien's attitudes on war. Tolkien hates war so much, and I think possibly the very best thing that sums this up is Faramir talking about war and saying, I do not value the sword for its sharpness or the arrow for its swiftness. I only value that which they defend, which yes. is core Tolkien. That yes, That is like the quote of all time, isn't it? <laughs> like... He's not a pacifist. He will fight. He does believe that there are things worth fighting for. But it's not about the fight. It's about the things you are protecting. It is about the good. And losing sight of that is bad. Um, yeah. But also very easy to do during war. Um, you know, there are, there are, again, lots of figures who are on very much the good side who do fall into that a little bit. You know, they are like, yeah, we can kill all these orcs. Hooray! Um, and that is very much not a good thing like that that is not something they should be praised and valorized for um but it just is a thing it is how it is um that wrath in fact Tolkien a lot a lot of when he's writing about about violence and wrath he talks again about that rage about like a lot of the a lot of the stuff in the Civil Rillion a lot of the uh stuff again in the Lord of the Rings where there's battles there is almost always rage and hatred and these big impulsive emotions and those can lead you to be you know very successful they can they can they can drive you on and have you fight the enemy and beat them and all of this stuff and that can be important and it can be good that you have beaten that enemy it's still again rage and hate and these negative emotions which can be quite destructive and indeed a lot of the time people charge forward in rage and hate they end up being overwhelmed and surrounded and killed um, and again i think that speaks very highly of the if you do things uh, for bad stuff, it will generally come back and uh, hurt you as well. Yes. But yeah, I think that is uh, really amazing. And I think, yeah, Tolkien, this is, I think, again, the big differences between the, the films and the books is the films are kind of action-y. And although they don't, you know, fully portray war as like great and wonderful and stuff. Yeah, they do. They do sort of show it off a bit. You know, it's flashy. It's cool. There's not as much focus on in general there's focus on specific dead you know this person died this person died um and we're very sad about them dying but there's not this sort of general grief that there has been so much loss you know there is not that general we are burying the dunlandings as well because they also died that you get from the actual books of lord of the rings where yeah it's terrible it's really really terrible so yeah i mean that's Tolkien's attitudes on war and where he's coming from with war and why i especially i don't like you know people saying any you know oh this is allegory for anything but especially world war one and world war two i get very annoyed at when people consider consider the books allegories about that because no not at all absolutely not it's 
it's especially frustrating sometimes because a lot of the time the same people who say oh this is allegory are the people who say you should write what you know and it's like well he did write what he knew that we doesn't make it an allegory <laughs> well and i think again i think i think another aspect of this is very important again talking treats was very bad and, and, and difficult and not as like this really glorious thing and i think this is very notable in the aftermath of the battle of pelennor fields because the thing that marks aragorn as a king after the battle is his healing powers not his victory in the war yes and equally you know who have read the books may sometimes complain like oh Eowyn does like one warrior thing and then stops and becomes a healer and like yeah okay I'm not going to say there are problems with the way women are depicted in Lord of the Rings I think again it's one of those sort of unintended inference type things where there just aren't very sort of many places for them in the you know fantasy medieval plot I think a lot of the time when women are depicted like they are depicted autonomous people you know yes they are yeah, and this is they... what um me and Piff Paff were talking about when um when she did an episode on strong female characters as a few a few episodes back and we were discussing whether Eowyn counts as a strong female character and it's like well she made her own decision to take that path she wasn't exactly like it's not something that she was forced into again along with that she chose to fight and then she chose to value healing and do that instead and that's fine people are allowed to do that Absolutely. And I think also it's very interesting because Eowyn does a really heroic action in defeating the Witch King, but she does also abandon her responsibilities at home. She is supposed to be looking after the people of Rohan while the other people are going to, to, to fight, like someone needs to remain to yeah. lead the people at home. And she abandons those responsibilities to go fight. She takes up the, the, the active sort of glory of, of, of war over taking care of the people. And, you know, there is very much this sense that yeah no that's understandable because she felt terribly unable to do anything and that really wore on her and made her feel um unsafe and helpless and by being able to go and fight she was able to feel better about that but it's not it's still not necessarily okay like like no. that is still you know something she did that you know maybe she didn't done and, but importantly it's a choice and as as little as women are depicted in lord of the rings it is true that i think pretty much universally they are shown as being able to make their own choices and having their own autonomy and being complete people. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, the choices they make are so important. Arwen's choice to remain with Aragorn and become mortal. Eowyn's choice to go and fight. Uh, Galadriel's choice to uh, refuse the ring and depart into the West. They are choices. They define the characters. It is so important, which is why, again, like, you know, obviously, like, there is some, like, sexism and stuff and, 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 and stuff about, like, gender roles and all this stuff. It is still pretty important, like, and that's why I think you can view a lot of these characters as strong female characters. And as I said, you know, Tolkien hates war, and Tolkien is very much of the opinion that if everyone was healers, um, the world would be a lot better place. So, and like, he is not, right. <laughs> and it's not just, it's not just, you know, oh, women shouldn't fight. It's that fighting in general is bad, and valuing healing and care, and taking that as the choice that you make in order to feel more in control of your own destiny a good choice um yes you know don't go and, and and fight about it it reminds me very much of those posts you sometimes see on the internet of like hey don't post things to make turfs or racists or any of these people mad post things that make people of color or trans people or, or you know whoever feel safe and again i think it's that dichotomy yeah it's cool and epic and even fun to go off to war and fight for for the good thing healing like 
caring for people, that's probably more important. That's probably yeah. actually a better thing to be doing. And that's not just for Eowyn, that is for everyone. Again, Aragorn's healing powers are what mark him as a king. So I think that's just like incredibly important. And it's interesting because I think there's one other really big thing about the way in which evil characters are evil and in which good characters fall in Lord of the Rings. And I think it's interesting because it ties into free will and it ties into making choices, as I said, which is possessiveness. A lot of the evil people in Lord of the Rings, film really in anything, are evil in a possessive way. Yeah. Morgoth wants to possess the world and possess the powers of creation. Sauron wants to possess power over others and dominion over the rings of power and over their wielders. Saruman wants to possess that power too and wants to have their own uh, their own you know realm under their control. Gollum even wants to possess the ring. Denethor is very jealous of his position as the ruler of Gondor and turns against uh, Gandalf's advice and against Aragorn because he feels threatened by that but is also very possessive over his sons when, you know, when Boromir dies and then when Faramir dies, he is heavily affected by that. And part of that, you know, is just normal human grief, which again, Tolkien would absolutely understand. But part of that, especially in the way his breakdown is shown after the death of Faramir, the loss of what it all means to him. And and that's why sort of he, you know, that's part of why he sort of despairs and is like, I'm just going to burn us both and let the city fall. Like it no longer matters. His sort of, role within things his position his abilities are gone at that stage and he feels hopeless um, and hopelessness and despair is another big of lord of the rings that's very much the powers of evil are to cause hopelessness and despair but again i think the the way in which evil people often become evil in, in lord of the rings and, and tolkien works in general is by being more possessive you know by wanting to possess things again going to the silmarillion you've got uh Maitland's desire to possess uh idril and, and you know, Fionor's desire to possess his uh, Silmarils and all of these things. Um, so I do think there is a large amount of, of possessiveness in any of the evil in Tolkien. And I think, again, an element of being good is allowing things to be as they are to an extent. Like not being passive about things, not, not fighting against evil and all these things, but again, not attempting to force your will onto the world. Yes. That, that is wrong. And indeed is a flaw that good people are aware of. Gandalf and Galadriel both know that if they took the ring and used its power, they could absolutely defeat Sauron. And then they would set themselves up in a very similar way to Sauron because they would think they know what is best for people. And even though um, it would start off good and people would be happy and, and everyone would love Galadriel or stuff, it would end up being bad because you cannot force your will on people like that. And it's that choices thing again, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It all it all interlinks everything in Doggy did like so well because again he's got he's got quite a solid philosophy about things. Um, and again, I think that is very powerful. I think that's a very powerful philosophy to have. Um, I think you know in many ways I agree with it. Um, I think I think yeah, like tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of a line from Discworld, um, uh, which also has influences from <laughs> from Tolkien. Who knew? Um, in which Granny Weatherwax um, is talking about what makes people evil, and she says it begins with treating people like things. That's where it begins. Yeah. That's where all evil, like that, you know, that's the start of evil. It goes in lots of other places from there, but it begins with treating people like things. And yeah, like, yeah, I do think there's other stuff about evil and all this other stuff, but I do think, again, 
Tolkien and Pratchett have both done it very well there. Autonomy. It's super important. It is indeed. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think it's very important. And well, actually, the mention of autonomy brings me back to another uh, quote area that I wanted to talk about, which is also super important and which is also linked to race and religion and free will. Um, <laughs> there is this uh, area um, where, so the men of Rohan are heading to uh, Gondor, um, but they discover that there is a force of orcs ahead of them um, and they would have to fight through and you know they don't have time for that and they might lose and all of these issues um, but luckily the Druidan, the men of the forest um, are able to help them um, and they are able to uh, sneak past in talking to the uh, the Druidan, um, there are some really important points uh, which I think uh, are worth talking about. Um, because again, I think it speaks to Tolkien's attitudes on race and, and free will and some of these things. Um, so Merry is hearing some drums and he is told, you hear the Woeses, the wild men of the woods, thus they talk together from afar. They still haunt Druidan Forest, it is said. Remnants of an older time they be, living few and secretly, wild and wary as the beasts. They go not to war with Gondor the Mark, but now they are troubled by the darkness and coming of the orcs. They fear lest the dark years be returning, as seems likely enough. Let us be thankful they are not hunting us, for they use poisoned arrows, it is said, and they are woodcrafty beyond compare. Um, and then, as we move forward, um, they describe this man, uh, a, a gr on the ground sat a strange squat shape of a man, gnarled as an old stove, and the hairs of his scanty beard straggled on his lumpy chin like dry moss. He was short-legged and fat-armed, thick and stumpy, and clad only with grass about his waist. His voice was deep and guttural, yet to merry surprise he spoke the common speech, though in a halting fa fashion, and uncouth words were mingled in it. And so already, I think you can tell from those descriptions, you know, this is an... Again, to westernize, unlovely looking person, um, and and you know seems you know maybe a little barbaric and stuff. But as you will find out, and uh, as we go on, they are very much on the side of good. Um, yeah. And you know, as we'll talk about some more, there may be you know a, a, a shade of the noble savage to what's uh, to Tolkien's descriptions of this stuff. But even that, I think, is perhaps you know being a little bit unfair on Tolkien's descriptions. I I don't think there's too much of that. Um, and again, I think it's very telling of Tolkien's like, hey, not all people look good. Um, like, just because something someone's pretty doesn't mean they're good. Tolkien makes that point a lot, actually. Um, yeah. And again, this is a different people in a different culture. And interestingly, one who had been mistreated. Because as we go down here, um, If you are faithful, Gan Bui Gan, then we will give you rich reward, and you shall have the friendship of the Mark forever. Dead men are not friends to living men, and give them no gifts, said the wild man. But if you live after the darkness, then leave wild men alone in the woods, and do not hunt them like beasts anymore. Um, which again, suggests that the Rohirrim have been doing some bad stuff to these people historically. <laughs> um, 
And unlike the Dunlandings, where there is, again, a, a, you know, a simple question of like, well, you know, they have these grievances, but are they justified and all this stuff? The Druidan, as is made clear in the books, are unquestionably uh, on the good side and helping them and did not deserve to be hunted like beasts. Um, and, you know, it is, it is that exactly um, uh, incredibly uh, important thing. Um, and there is um, one other quite qu quite good quote that I think is um, good again from Gambury Gan, um, in which he says, um, "Wild men are free, but not children." Um, I am great headman Gambury Gan. I count many things: stars in sky, leaves on trees, men in dark, um, and again, like that is a a pushback against this again sort of infantilization of uh, certain people uh which again historically has been a big thing um and yep. has evil and bad and again like for a work written at this time period um at the height of the british empire i think that's pretty damn good it really is to be honest like i've read things written by the bbc within the past year about like the part of England that I'm from that is more weirdly racist than that is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like here's the thing. Like I think I think there is um a lot of very notable ways in which there is massive uh stuff that, that Lord of the Rings does that is better than a lot of stuff. And here's another one. Um, when Aragorn is returning after the victories um, and everything is good, uh, and he passes by the Forest of Druidan, and he says, Behold, the King Elisar is come. The Forest of Druidan he gives to Ganburi Gan and to his folk, to be their own forever, and hereafter let no man enter it without their leave. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, like, there's still some potentially questionable stuff about, like, giving it to them and stuff. But... Land return! Land return to indigenous people who have suffered under the, the, the actions of others. We like land return. Land return is a good thing. That's what we're working for. Like, I mean, like, here's the thing. Like, like, land return is certainly a complicated issue and stuff. But it's certainly, again, like, and again, like, the way they're presenting it here is like, you know, we're giving it to you as like a gift, which like, did you have the right? It, was it ever really yours to give? Is it, yeah. no question. But importantly, it's still way better than a lot of things you would see today, isn't it? America, really take note. <laughs> the 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 vibes of it are much much better. Um, yes, and um, I also think um, it's again it's 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 really telling of that. Um, you know, uh, something that Frodo says to, to, to says to Aragorn that you know if you were a servant of the enemy, I think you would seem fairer and feel fouler um and yeah that's another really big thing that tolkien makes a point of lots of times is that prettiness and 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 beauty and all of this stuff is not indicative of goodness um, yeah and, and that these people who seem weird and strange and simple to you are actually not you know they are full uh people living their own lives doing their own things and you should respect that and not hunt them like beasts yeah Oh, and it, uh, again, it's just this, this really, really 
impressive stuff to see from right at the time because like yeah obviously again like i've said before there is bad stuff in tolkien in the way that he talks about some of these things absolutely but the overall picture the overall message that he gives is so so good even to this day um it holds up so much better than a lot of stuff i mean cough cough harry potter but uh, yeah <laughs> you know like it genuinely is really good and again the more he expands on these things the better it seems you know if you read the silmarillion if you read the unfinished tales if you read uh, the making of lord of the rings books or if you read his letters and things generally the more he expands on it the more clear it is that he's like yeah no these people are our own people and they should be respected and and, and, and you know people aren't irredeemably evil and, and you know even the orcs aren't irredeemably evil and and you know no there were people in the east who were not on Sauron's side and all of this stuff like other races um yes they are they value material things but there is a brilliant quote from the hobbit which i am going to use here because it is just absolutely um brilliant um it's thorin talking about the life before uh, smaug came um and it says this Altogether, those were good days for us, and the poorest of us had money to spend and to lend and leisure to make beautiful things just for the fun of it, not to speak of the most marvellous and magical toys, the like of which is not to be found in the world nowadays. So my grandfather's halls became full of armour and jewels and carvings and cups, and the toy market of Dale was the wonder of the North. Now, obviously, there's material stuff going on there. But also, look at the way that they're talking about it, of the leisure to make beautiful things just for the fun of it, the marvellous and magical toys. Like, yeah, like they're talking about making things, like the toys especially, they're talking about making things better for like the children and making it so that everyone can live in like joy and happiness and pleasure rather than just existing. Exactly, and, and the perfect counterpoint to this to show what actual, like again, true greed is as opposed to, you know, dwarves, they're a bit too materialistic to be sure, like, you know, that is commented again in The Hobbit. Um, where 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 Torian says Torian says to Bilbo, you know, if more of us valued cheer and food um, above uh, gold and jewels, the world would be a merrier place. Yes. Um, like yeah, like there is an element of that. But what real greed is, it's here, um, is where they're talking about Smaug. Dragons steal gold and jewels, you know, from men and elves and dwarves wherever they can find them, and they guard their plunder as long as they live, which is practically forever unless they are killed, and never enjoy a brass ring of it. Indeed, they hardly know a good bit of work from a bad, though they usually have a good notion of the current market value, and they can't make a thing for themselves, not even mend a little loose scale of their armour. Now, that is very different to the way the dwarves were talking about their material possessions. That yes. is not one recognising what is, like, good, good, what it, what is impressively built or things, only recognising it for its material value, um, not enjoying any of it, not being able to do any of it yourself, and not giving any of it up. That's greed. Whereas, again, the dwarves were talking, yeah, we had money to spend and to lend. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we had time to spend in leisure building. Like, dwarves value craftsmanship and they value the, 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 the material possessions, but a lot of what they value it for is for the craft that has been put into it. That is a lot of what it is about for them. They, they they marvel at the fineness and the impressiveness of what has been done. And indeed, in Lord of the Rings, um, talking about these wonderful caverns um, within Helm's Deep, um, uh, Gimli uh, talks about these caverns being absolutely 
beautiful because of all the gems and things within them. Um, and uh, it's remarked that, oh, maybe they shouldn't mention this to uh, dwarves uh, because, you know, they will they will mine it all and um, it will be uh, it will be terrible, you, you know, because it will be destroyed. Um, and Gimli says, no, you do not understand. No dwarf could be unmoved by such loveliness. None of Durin's race would mine those caves for sto stones or ore, not, e not if diamonds and gold could be got there. Do you cut down groves of blossoming trees in the springtime for firewood? We would tend these glades of flowering stone, not quarry them, with cautious skill, tap by tap, a small chip of rock, no more, perhaps, in a whole anxious day. So we would work, and as the years went by, we should open up new ways and display far chambers that are still dark, glimpsed only as voids beyond fissures in the rocks. And lights, Legolas, we should make lights, such lamps as once shone in Khazad-dûm. And when we wished, we would drive away the night that has lain there since the hills were made. And when we desired rest, we would let the night return. And again, one, something I really hate about dwarves, they are all like so gruff um, and, and taciturn in a lot of um, works. No, dwarves are incredibly well-spoken. Gimli is perhaps the most well-spoken member of um, the entire fellowship. Um, and again, he is talking about the beauty and wonder of the natural world there um, in stone and ores and things um, and how they would craft it to show even more of its beauty. That, again, is not the sort of weird greediness of dwarves that is, is again, shown in a lot of ways. Um, and I also touch upon this because, you know, people have said, oh, you know, Tolkien's dwarves are Jewish stereotypes. Um, and Tolkien himself admitted, you know, there is some ways in which dwarves and Jews, you know, do have some similarities. Um, Admittedly, a large part of what he was talking about was the fact that he based Dwarvish on Semitic languages such as Hebrew. Um, but there are other things as well. But I think it's worth saying that being compared to any race is ever not a problem, because there's always problematic aspects of it. Of course there are. Um, I don't think the Dwarves in Tolkien portray particular negative Jewish stereotypes. And there's still problems, to be clear, with portraying any sort of stereotypes as you know, oh, this group are like this. Um, but I, I, I do think it would be unjust to call it anti-Semitic. Now, some of the other uh, dwarves that, again, Tolkien imitators and even in the movies, especially The Hobbit, they all have very big noses in The Hobbit, which is, again, not really a Tolkien thing. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, I'm like, yeah, no, that's definitely worse. Um, but I think, again, you know, if you look at the way in which dwarves actually behave in Lord of the Rings and how they are, I think it is quite... Uh, quite a stretch to view them as a a, a, a a negative portrayal of Jews, if at all they are a portrayal of Jews, which again I think is also something of a stretch as well. Yeah, I mean I read an article a while ago, um, so I can't remember the exact details of it, but it was written by a Jewish person, scholar I guess, um, who was a fan of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, and they basically said that their interpretation of The Hobbit was that it was not just the dwarves as a like race, but the plot as a whole was a an inherently like Jewish story because of the way it was structured and like the idea of them being basically in diaspora from their homeland and trying to come back to it and find it in different places and yeah I can't remember the exact specifics of it but 
they were sort of saying that even if they are a Jewish stereotype, the story is Jewish enough that it doesn't matter to them that much. Exactly. But that's also obviously only one person's interpretation of it. So no, absolutely. And again, as I say, like I, I will also say, you know, as I said before, I'm white. I'm also goy. Like I, I cannot comment like too much about these things. But again, like taking a taking a broad view, you know, in comparison to other things and these um, and these stuff. Again, like I think it holds up fairly well. And again, having talked to Jewish people about it, the general consensus is, yeah, it's not a particular problem. Like, yeah, maybe sometimes there's some stuff that would be, you know, would prefer a little bit different. But yeah. in terms of things Jewish people are concerned with, the representation of dwarves in the Lord of the Rings itself, as opposed to, you know, a lot of its imitators and stuff, tends not to come up very much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And the other side of this that I wanted to um, mention is, of course, Tolkien wonderfully um, responds to a message from. Uh, oh yes. <laughs> um, now it's two letters to his editor, and the editor doesn't send this one, which is absolute shame. But the letter that he uh, sends to his editor, uh, which he doesn't send, which is luckily preserved, um, about like, oh, do you have any uh, Semitic heritage? One is like. What on earth is uh no, no exactly about Aryan heritage I think it's like yes yeah, so like the, the German around? editors <laughs> do, you, do you mean the people around Ir Iran because that's what Ari that's the area of Aryan peoples um and no I don't but also um if you're you're asking me about Jewish heritage I have to say no sadly I don't have any of that wonderful people um <laughs> uh, and like again like Tolkien hated the Nazis so much I know oh. um and again like again yes. I absolutely think there's problems with Tolkien and, you know, if he was alive today, I have no idea what you think about a whole bunch of things like homophobia and transphobia and all this stuff. But I will say, as someone that is queer and trans uh, uh, about things, I do get the vibe that Tolkien, again, might not have been on my side about a lot of these things, but probably would have defended me against a lot of the virulent stuff like yeah I get a vibe very much that I get from Pope Francis for example who's like hey look they shouldn't be doing this but don't hurt them about it that won't be good um and you know maybe that's wrong maybe that's ridiculous we'll never know Tolkien died a while back um, yeah. but I think the very fact that it gives off so much of that vibe speaks very well of the story and of Tolkien's attitude you know I think that is very important um and I think also the other side of this uh that I think is is really interesting is um as I was talking about with the dwarves you know, as well as being, you know, not necessarily greedy, um, you know, valuing material things, but not so greedy, um, there's loads of other things about them um, that, again, just come up, you know, their love of music. There are, there's an entire song in The Lord of the Rings about uh, back in the time of Durin when uh, Khazad-dûm, when Moria was uh, still going, and, and they would celebrate and, and, and play pipes and drums, uh, and, you know, part of the sadness of, of the end of the thing is, those are silent now. Um, and again, that's not something, love of music is not something you usually get from dwarves in fantasy. Um, and also, again, a really powerful thing, um, there is the Miramir, which is a beautiful still lake in which the stars are reflected like jewels. Um, and this is incredibly important to the dwarves to the extent that after getting through Moria and the death of Gandalf and being absolutely shattered and tired and exhausted, Gimli still wants to go and see it and does with Frodo and admires the beauty of this lake with the stars reflected in it. And again, that is not an attitude of the dwarves in a lot of fantasy to look at a lake in which the stars are reflected and to decide that this is one of the most beautiful things. 
dwarves love the natural world and although they don't necessarily have the greatest like appreciation for all aspects of it and and you know not necessarily you know the same relationship with trees and stuff that that legolas's people do and all this stuff no they absolutely value it um and they are not just weird greedy materialistic stereotypes or anything like that no they are they are complicated people people capable of good and evil but certainly not inherently evil in any way and in fact one thing i quite like about dwarves is they are very indomitable um, and in fact, it's mentioned that when the uh, rings are given out to the various peoples of the world um, that Sauron then uses to try and control them, um, the mortal men, they absolutely become controlled and uh, become uh, the ring race. Uh, the elves hide their rings um, so they don't get affected by it um, and don't use them until Sauron is uh, defeated. Um, and then when the ring is destroyed, their powers go as well and they leave. Um, the dwarves do use them and it does have bad effects on them but those effects are pretty much just magnifying their own greed. They do not, in the way that the ring race did, become subservient to Sauron. Um, they are their own people still, even as they fall into evil. Um, yes. That's very, uh, that's very, like, interesting and complex. Um, and I just, I really, really love it. I really love how complex every group in the Lord of the Rings gets more and more attention. The more attention you give it, the more deep and complex and clear it is that Tolkien has sought a lot about these things. And again, I think it's that thing of like a lot of the imitators make it very Planet of the Hats, um, where, again, if you've seen the overly sarcastic production episode of Planet yes. of the Hats, about <laughs> like a lot of things do that with elves and dwarves and all of these things, um, and it's done very badly. Whereas again, in the books, everyone has so many different things, even amongst the hobbits. Like, yes, there's the very sort of respectable, plain, um, unassuming uh, hobbit of, of, of the Bagginses and stuff, but there's also the crazy adventurous Tooks and the wild Brandybucks, and um, there is, like, big differences between them in that, you know, the Brandybucks like swimming and they like going on boats um, in a way that other hobbits find weird because they don't like water and they avoid that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's, there's also things like... Um, uh, you know, the way elves, you know, they're displayed as like, oh, they're, they're, they're such um, nature people, you know, so connected to nature. And like, yeah, a lot of elves are, but the Nordor, who have some of the most important elves in the history of Middle-earth in, are not. They are miners and forgers like the dwarves. Um, and in fact, in Lord of the Rings, there is uh, Legolas talks, these were strange elves that lived here. The trees do not remember them, but the rocks do. Um, and again, like, that is a difference that you would not get in a lot of works about elves, but Tolkien absolutely does it. Tolkien absolutely has these proper differences. And again, they are full and complete things because even within that, there are differences between all of the people. You know, it's not like all of these elves are Smith. It is like that is an area which they tend towards, which they, you know, have more skills in and which they uh, have tended to focus on. But there are absolutely variations within that. You know, there are ones who are not. There are ones who are more warriors. There are ones who are more hunters. There are ones who do other things. Like, it's all very much a mix and again i love that again every time yes. you dive deeper into an area of tolkien you find more stuff and i think that is super important and like i just again i think i think it's really really impressive that again tolkien has really thought about all of these things he has put so much effort i mean you know partly just because he really wants to play around with the languages which yeah. is <laughs> we'll get to languages in a bit because I don't have too much to say about them just because it's, ama it's amazing but it's not like too complicated um, but like yeah it's it, it's great um, and yeah the um, other side of thing I was going to talk about with, with these things is 
I think it's very interesting. I actually read an article about um, Tolkien and race previously, and although it had some good points and, and made some good things, I knew that I wouldn't agree with it fully because it began by saying, in Tolkien's world, elves are the best thing you can be. And as soon as I read that, I knew it was someone who didn't get Tolkien because no. Indeed, if anything is the best thing to be, it's probably hobbits, but yeah. even hobbits, it's definitely not elves because it is very made very clear, again, more in the similar in the Lord of the Rings, that elves have a very difficult time because they are bound to the circles of the earth, which means even when they die, they're not gone. They don't move on. Um, they go to another part of the world. They go to the halls of Mandos and can, in fact, come back from there and be reincarnated. Um, and it's explicitly said in the Silmarillion that that will wear on them and they will just become so tired of everything. Um, and that even the great powers, the Valor and the Maya, who are also bound to the circles of the world, will also feel that. But men pass on. And where they go, no one save Iluvatar knows. Um, and it has been promised that they will indeed, they don't just go to nothing, that they will be part of the second song with Iluvatar, which is at the end of the world and, and sort of remakes it to be uh, better. Um, but no one knows. No one knows for sure. Um, and with that comes a lot of fear of death, which is, you know, leads to a lot of bad things that men do and, and stuff that happens. But also it is explicitly said that this gift, this gift to pass on and not stay within the bounds of the earth forever is something that even the great powers of the Valor and Maya will envy. Um, and yeah, again, I think that's very important. I think it's, yeah. it's the thing in which, again, imitators often make elves just like better than men. Um, and like in Tolkien, elves are more resistant to diseases. Um, they are uh, more able to heal from, from grievous wounds and go on without sleep and things. They are um, hardier. They are uh, better at a whole bunch of things. But they're not better than men. They're not, like, inherently better. Um, whatever some elves may think. Um, yeah. <laughs> the way it works. Um, and some of the greatest heroes of all of uh, the history of Middle-earth are men. Um, because of some of, again, the unique qualities of men and their abilities, um, and especially the other gift of Iluvatar, the other side of things, which is that, for those of you who haven't read Sim William and don't know these things, uh, at the very beginning of the world, Iluvatar, who is basically God, uh, and the uh, Valar and Maya, who are basically angels, um, sing a song, and this creates the world. Again, Tolkien loves music. Um, yes. But there's an important aspect of this in that everything that happens in the world is ultimately part of this song. Um, and the Valor and Maya know some of it because of their part in being part of the song, although they don't know all of it because they weren't singing all of it. Um, only, you know, they only know the parts they were singing and maybe some of the parts that they um, paid attention to as well. Um, Iluvatar specifically is the only one who did the sounds for elves and men, which means that they are uniquely his and the Valor and Maya have very little knowledge of them, sort of philosophically speaking. You know, they, they learn about men and elves and stuff, and they learn what they're like and all this stuff, but they don't have sort of foreknowledge about them much. They might have a little bit. Um, but very importantly, all of these things are bound to what was in the song to a certain extent. Um, again, there's free will and stuff. But there is a certain amount to which there is fate and destiny as well. Um, men, however, are specifically given the ability to, within 
the uh, destiny of the world to shape their own fate. Um, again, in a way which not even the Valar have. Men are like free will is a big thing for for all of Tolkien's stuff and all of that, but men are like even more radically free than the usual. Yeah. Um, and again, that's something that to the kind of person that Tolkien was is very important. Um, I have uh oh on that point one other thing again I'm talking about this more perhaps another time when I'm talking specifically about the Simulian, but on the dwarves um. I absolutely love the fact that the dwarves are not created by Iluvatar, but are adopted by him and given free will by him. Um, and that affects some of their relationships with other people as well. It's just, it's again, it's a really interesting concept. And again, not one that comes across in a lot of stuff, but they are still seen as, again, like equal to men and elves and not like some lesser group. It's it's great. It's amazing. Um, but the other thing I was going to say about Tolkien, and this is actually... Um, Oh, this is one of those things where I'm like, oh man, this is tough. Um, as I was saying, because elves and men, elves sort of stay within the realms of Arda, within, you know, Earth in some form, and men don't, they pass on. This is really big for things like Arwen's decision to become mortal and stay with Aragorn, because that is not just not being with her father during her lifetime. That is being sundered from him in the afterlife as well until the end of the world and for someone that's going to live for the entirety of the world until that yeah you can get why Elrond is so upset by the concept and why he makes it so difficult for Aragorn yeah <laughs> that is big and also again like there's an influence here because Tolkien was Catholic and his wife converted to marry him and less Aragorn and Arwen more Baron and Luthien again there's a slight element of wow Tolkien like that's really sweet that you love your wife this much um, yeah <laughs> it's also like kind of like philosophically terrifying that you're like yeah she's sundered forever from her family to marry me that's like really sad i'm gonna write a whole book. and like yeah it's just absolutely amazing and i also think that i'm going to talk about this very interesting difference between the books and the films actually because i mentioned it before about the scouring of the shire um, and if you've only seen the films what this is is when they return to the shire they find that saruman has been there before them and has essentially uh, caused a lot of devastation in terms of sort of setting up like basic industry stuff that that um, you know is is kind of pointless because it's not doing anything. They set up a bigger mill, for example, but they don't have any more grain to to grind with it, so it's useless. Um, but in doing so, they've destroyed like lots of the environment. And there are um, men and indeed some hobbits who are helping Saruman and basically uh, enforcing his rule um, on behalf of uh, Otho's or might be Lotho actually, uh, but one of the Saxville Bagginses, who's one of um, Frodo's uh, relatives, um, and one, there's a great sign that even hobbits can do evil, that's important. Um, yeah. Two, I think it's very interesting that this is what happens, because there's an element of, you know, you can't go home again because of your stuff changing, you know, Frodo doesn't end up staying because he's been too affected by his stuff. But in the films, there is no change in the Shire. The Shire is the same, and it's just that Frodo and his experiences made it difficult but in the books Frodo still had those experiences and it's still too difficult but the Shire has also changed and I'm curious I, I couldn't say sure but I would imagine again talking about inspirations coming back from the trenches people who didn't go to the trenches cannot understand what you went through um, and that's going to have an effect on you obviously yeah but again for World War One and World War Two the home front was also a thing like things massively changed at home as well they also oh yeah they were different um but they were also there um Whereas these days, I wonder if there's a bit more reflection of the fact that in the West, at least again, 
we might send soldiers to war and they might come back and not understand how to relate to society. But the society doesn't change from the war. You know, we like, you know, yeah, sure, there's some side effects, but, you know, the amount that the Iraq war impacted people within Britain is tiny. Um, yeah. And I wonder if that's part of why you get that, that slight difference. Again, couldn't possibly, you know, actually say, because, you know, I don't know the, the mind of Peter Jackson. It may have just been time constraints and things. Um, but but I am just a little bit curious about that, whether it's like, yeah, people come back from the war and they don't understand the home because the home hasn't changed. Whereas, again, for Tolkien and, and, and Frodo, they came back from war heavily changed um, and unable to fix society. But also society had also changed because of the stuff as well. You know, home was not safe. Yeah. I mean, the technically it does show up in the film, but only for like two seconds as a very brief clip of a possible future when yeah, Frodo no, looks in Galadriel's Galadriel, thing. But... <laughs> but I don't think that really counts. <laughs> no, I also don't think that really counts, especially because it very much doesn't seem to have happened in the actual work. Like, that doesn't seem to be the thing that no. did happen. And there's a deleted scene of, of, of how Saruman dies, which is very different and everything. So it seems very unlikely. Um, but yeah, like I think I think all of this stuff is is really interesting. And I think again, talking now a little bit about the way despair and hopelessness is handled, you know, I think that is a big way in which the powers of evil work. Um Denethor, for example, is unable to be dominated by Sauron, even in his the depths of his grief, he refuses to serve Sauron. He is stronger than that, which I think is also another thing about free will and the powers of men because Saruman who is you know metaphysically way more powerful than um Denethor is suborned by Sauron and while he's always you know plotting to to try and you know betray Sauron and, and get his own power over it um he is way more controlled by Sauron than Denethor is um yeah but what Sauron can do to Denethor is make him despair make him feel that the fight is hopeless and that he might as well give up um and that happens a lot um, that is very much a tool of evil that is used again and again. Um, people despair and it makes them unable to carry on and evil is able to defeat them. Um, uh, happens a lot more in the Silmarillion, to be fair, but it does also happen in Lord of the Rings. Um, and it's very important because, again, that is something that absolutely uh, is probably informed by some of Tolkien's personal experiences. Um, but also, he really values hope. Um, hope is an incredibly important uh, thing along with um, you know uh, love and, and compassion and mercy um, and and you know to a certain extent faith um, but it must be said that of um, you know as much as I say you know Tolkien's very religious and his religion impacts what he writes faith is very minor in the Lord of the Rings um, people do not pray very much um, there are like very minor references to uh uh imploring the valor for help in one battle when someone's running away from a mumakil uh, a mumak sorry mumakil is the plural um talking nerd <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know that is i think again notable that even though he does again have this very religious uh idea about how things are you, you know he, he's a devout catholic and stuff despite this he is not making anything really religious a pillar of what he's writing about. No, he's making more universal concepts of hope, mercy, forgiveness, um, and of overlooked people 
being able to still contribute important, in fact, absolutely vital uh, acts. Um, and that is not the, 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 the great and the glorious who win. It is the humble and the uh, ordinary. Um, you know, Frodo, uh, who is very um, under noticed by a lot of people throughout the books, you know, that is part of the whole plan is that Sauron won't think about him. And even readers today often sometimes like be like, oh, Frodo doesn't really do much. Like he's not much of a hero, but like that's kind of the point is that he's not doing anything like um, flashy, but he is just enduring and doing his best. And that is still heroic. Um, but also, of course, Sam, um, an incredibly <laughs> ordinary person amongst all of these people. Just just hang on. I will give you a brief, a very brief rundown of the nine members of the fellowship and then tell you about <laughs> Am is the most important one, because you have Aragorn, descendant of the Numenorians, rightful king of Gondor and Arnor. Boromir, also descendant of the Numenorians, son of the steward of Gondor. Legolas, son of the king of Mirkwood. Gimli, descendant of Durin's line, the most important royal family of dwarves. Gandalf, a literal angel in human-ish form. <laughs> Pippin, Merry, and Frodo, members of the three probably most important families of hobbits um, they are landed gentry <laughs> they, are, they, are, they are landed gentry um and they are they are young um especially pippin um and they are um you know impulsive um and and well especially mary and pippin less so frodo uh, <laughs> yeah and, but, but, but you know within hobbit society they are elevated you know they they, they are as much as hobbits are of noble blood so again, this is the lineages of all of these people. And for people that talk a bit about how like Tolkien focuses too much on like blood, blood stuff and, 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 and lineages and all this like weird stuff that, that they find off-putting, a little bit understandable. But the counterpoint, the amazing counterpoint is Sam, who is a gardener um, <laughs> and descended from Gaff. <laughs> like he's descended from his gaffer and he is absolutely no one no one important at all even in hobbit society he is not important at all and, and yet <laughs> he is possibly the most important figure in the entirety of lord of the rings his compassion towards frodo his determination to help and his ability to resist the ring because it offers to him the power to make the entire world his garden and he's like well i couldn't garden that much he's like oh no other people would do it for you and he's like but i want to do the gardening um <laughs> It's, you know, he is still, to be clear, the ring still does have some power over him. It's not that he's entirely immune to it. But again, that very simple good sense and that very simple valuation of what is good. Um, like, again, Sam gets a lot of crap by a lot of people sometimes, um, especially, you know, for some of the more like stuff in the films that's kind of like comedy based. Um, but Sam is absolutely amazing and so, so, so good. And I love him. <laughs> again, this is, this is perhaps. Tolkien's biggest sign of, hey, ordinary people, like the most ordinary, like literally so, so ordinary, can be so important. Aragorn, Gandalf, Gimli, Legolas, Boromir, all of these massively important figures, Galadriel and Elrond and Glorfindel and everyone else, massively powerful figures of, of, of epic lineage and, 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 and sometimes vast, vast power. And Sam does more than any of them. Sam is more important than any of them, and that is so damn good. And and yeah, I just think it's absolutely incredible. Um, and I think there is there is so much to be said for Sam. And I think in many ways it is the sort of best 
counter argument to to people saying oh like Tolkien's like weird about like lineages and stuff and has this weird thing about like um who you're descended from and stuff and you know I I made a counterpoint to that sometimes with uh the way in which you know as I said before the kings of Gondor worried about marrying into Rohirrim because it might affect their ability and they found actually no no effect if anything it helped them um but the 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 best counterpoint is the fact that Sam is the plainest of the plain and is so important and is so hailed by the narrative so yeah I mean I think that's just absolutely amazing yes Um, you are absolutely correct Sam is just like god I I don't actually know what to say because I just I love him so much. <laughs> and, and, that's so fair. and again, I think it's Tolkien so clearly shows the value of the little things, that the, 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 the joy that can be found in everything. Um, in the Hobbits walking when they have their walking songs, um, in baths, which again they have a song about, um, in meals which they value, in in good company, in cheer. Again, if you value food and merriment, uh, the world would be a, a, a merrier place. There can be valuation and appreciation of beautiful arts and crafts and even valor in war, but more than any of that is the simple everyday stuff, the joy of life. Um, yes. I think Tolkien is, is really big on. Tolkien is really big on the fact that, look, the darkness can never be fully defeated. There will always be evil and it will always need to be fought. Good has to triumph time after time after time. But even then, even with all of that, there can be such beauty and joy and love within the world. And that is just absolutely amazing. Yes, it is. Um, and again, it's coming from someone who went through one of the worst experiences that humanity has ever been through, World War One and the trench warfare within it. Um, and to be able to come back the other side and write such a beautiful powerful work that describes in detail all of these beautiful natural wonders and other wonderful things like the good meals and the songs and the friendships that's really really impressive because a thousand authors can take the horrors of war and write about them and it will be powerful and moving but to write a book that does still include those absolute horrors and does still include incredibly gray moral areas and and characters who fail and losses that you can't recover from and being unable to go home again to be able to write a book that has all of that but is not crushing is not about how terrible it all is and how there's nothing you can do is not hopeless or despair is not a book of grief it is a book of joy and celebration of good over evil and of the wonder and the really beautiful things that can exist within the world if people work to protect things if people work to create things if people work to heal things that's incredible and and i think is no greater sign than of what lord of the rings is trying to say than the fact that from someone coming back from world war one and having experienced all that you can still write a book that is so filled with wonder and joy for the world as a whole and hope for humanity and the peoples as a whole nothing is a greater sign that the message of lord of the rings that yes there can still be good even amongst all the terror and evil and horror of war um there can still be good things and people can still do good and there can still be love and happiness nothing is a better sign of that than the fact that he wrote the damn book <laughs> yeah i do wonder if maybe like one of the reasons why 
it's such a prominent theme within the books is that he appreciates it more because he's come back from such an awful experience of war and death and destruction and everything. Yeah, I think it's good. And, and, and you know, just to touch a little bit on Dolphin the Man, like, you know, with this incredibly serious uh, 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 Oxford Press from things and people, you know, probably think of him as like, you know, this very old sort of serious man, you know, writing his books and things. He's, he seems so fun loving because there's just a few stories I know about him um, of one, him and C.S. Lewis turning up to a... The costume party! Well, no, no, no. It was a non-costume party. party. A normal party, but dressed as penguins. Yes. <laughs> Which, okay, that's amazing. And then my other, um, my other favourite one of these is a uh, invitation from uh, uh, to celebrate the, their their son Christopher Tolkien uh, coming of age. Six thirty p.m. onwards. RSVP if not coming. Carriages at midnight. Ambulances at two a.m. Wheelbarrows at five a.m. Purses at daybreak. I love it so much. Which again, um, like, Tolkien is filled with happiness and joy so much of the time. Yes. Um, I do think it's quite, it's quite funny that um, Diana Wynne-Jones, who, for people who have never read any of her books, A, what are you doing with your life? And B, uh, she was a, uh, an author, very, very prominent for, like, children's fantasy literature. She was in Tolkien's, like, class at Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> And um, he deliberately made the class really hard to try and get people to go away so he could write. And um, she just kept showing up every week so that he would have to teach. They had this very um, sort of friendly but antagonistic relationship wherein he desperately wanted her to go away so he could write and she just desperately wanted to just keep showing up just so that he couldn't, which I think is very funny. And that is also classic Tolkien, and, and it reminds me of the thing of his friendship with C.S. Lewis, which is a beautiful little friendship. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> and, uh, nearly stopped being friends because Tolkien didn't like the fact that he was including Father Christmas in <laughs> the Chronicles of Narnia. He was like, yes. what is Father Christmas doing in Narnia? It makes no sense. You're crazy. He's like, no, it's fine. It's good. Um, but yeah, my other favourite thing about Tolkien is um, the Ents uh, coming to help deep in Isengard is... Um, partly based on his frustration that in Macbeth, uh, Burnham Wood coming to Dunsinane is just <laughs> people taking branches of trees to use as camouflage. He's like, that's crappy. I'm going to write a story where book, where trees actually do come and destroy things. And he is correct. Great. <laughs> right. um, and like, yeah, I just, I, I love so many different aspects of Tolkien, the hope, the joy, the renewal um, and yeah, like stuff is lost and that is terrible and it can never be regained. That doesn't mean it's all bad. And, and, you know, I think that's again, really, really powerful. Um, and I also think that with, uh, his overall message and, and, you know, his, his general war and peace and love, mercy, material stuff, all of this stuff. Um, I think it all holds up so well, and I think it remains relevant to this day as well. Like, I don't think that philosophy has stopped being important. And, you know, I think you've got things like that brilliant quote of, I wish I did not live to see such times. And again, I was saying, so to all who live in such times, all we can do is choose what to do with the time that is given to us. And again, I think, you know, the modern age, you know, it can seem very overwhelming. There are so many problems that we face. Um, 
and it can seem scary and impossible. Um, and, you know, you can be very jealous of people who didn't have to deal with this, you know, of, of, you know, I'm relatively young, my parents' generation, you know, they got to live through a time of massive changes that made their lives easier, you know, uh, massive increase in vaccinations, massive increase in technology, increases in uh, education and welfare and all of this stuff, while they, you know, may well see things go, go worse now, they are unlikely to see, you know, a lot of the stuff become really severe in terms of stuff like the climate crisis. Um, they don't have to worry so much about the housing situation or, or a whole bunch of other issues. And, and again, that can feel very frustrating sometimes, seeing again what goes on in the Lord of the Rings and seeing the difficulty and the, in many ways, reluctance to, 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 to deal with it, but still going on to deal with it, still fighting because there is some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Um, yes! Like... <laughs> Yeah, like it's it's very powerful and very moving to me to this day. Um, and Lord of the Rings is one of the things which is capable of making me cry, um, which most things are not capable of doing. I cry very, very little, but Lord of the Rings, some of those scenes, again, those scenes where everyone is recorded as dying or some of the more powerful songs in it or just a whole bunch of different things. Oh, they are so powerful and so strong. And I just think, I mean, again, there are just so many moments of, of, of mourning, of appropriate mourning for people. And they are usually done by song, but they are so good. After Boromir dies, for example, and is buried, uh, Aragorn and Legolas sing a song about the people of Gondor waiting for Boromir's return and their grief when they hear he is dead. Um, and Gimli re remarks that he is too grief-stricken to sing. Uh, and again, very powerful very powerful um or again you know just seeing so many important moments in the books revolving around people having to choose what to do and choosing you know a lot of times to do the hard but good choice faramir choosing uh, at the cost of you know his potential uh, relationship with his father, you know, is already not good, but, but, you know, risking, you know, that his father will certainly get angry at him for not taking the ring back to him, choosing to let Frodo and Sam go on, on their journey. Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli choosing to go after Merry and Pippin and try and rescue them, even though it means that Frodo and Sam, they have no idea where they've gone and they won't be able to catch up to them because they just refuse to give up on their uh, friends like that and because Frodo has made it clear that he does not want that company at this stage and that he needs to go alone. Boromir choosing, having been tempted by the ring and having made a terrible mistake, choosing to try and save the Hobbit and, and failing, but importantly, being valued so much for having made that choice all the same, for having tried, um, even if eventually it was futile, for still having tried to do that good. Um, again, I think so many moments in the Lord of the Rings are powerful because of that choice, because you have the option to do something else. You have the option to hide or give in or uh, give up, but they don't. Except sometimes they do. Sometimes they fail. Frodo, at the end, fails, but they are still considered heroic because they tried so hard and they reached their breaking point and it is understood that everyone has that breaking point where they will break. Um, and that while that is terribly sad and while it would have been better if they hadn't broken, there should be compassion for them for having gone so far and suffered so much. And again, that is something that you don't even see in a lot of media today about war and good and evil and all this stuff, where it's like, oh, they failed, they're bad now. Like, no, no, Tolkien is like, no, 
No, it is again just so powerful, and so hopeful. And again, I think that theme of forgiveness is also again another really important aspect of Tolkien's works in Lord of the Rings and indeed in his works in general. And yeah, I just I I really really love it. I think also there is this this element to all of his works of you know things potentially yes getting worse you know that there are these almost cataclysmic events which cause massive problems and and stuff is lost forever um that is present in some really especially but it's also present in the lord of the rings you know there are things like lothlorien um and, and rivendell which become lesser at the end of lord of the rings um and and, and stuff like you know frodo needing to uh uh, leave because he can no longer bear to be in Middle Earth, um, and all kinds of stuff like that, where there is absolutely loss that will not be recovered from, and that is really, really tough. It's a good ending. It's it's the good ending. The good guys won, but stuff is still lost, um, and I think that's also really important. Yeah, um, I think it's really important. Of like, again, for people who view it as like a simplistic good and evil story especially because of the imitators, you would not get, you would not get how complicated, again, these things are. It's like, we won, and there is still bad stuff, and it is still really difficult. Um, and I think the perfect example of this, again, is in the scouring of Shire. Um, Saruman is so pleased because they cannot return the Shire to the way it was. Um, and thanks partly to some soil that Galadriel gave Sam, they are able to restore the trees and, and plants and stuff faster than they would have been able to otherwise. Um, you know, in years rather than generations, but it's still not the same. Like stuff was still destroyed. People lost their housing. Um, trees that were there and were old are dead and gone. And you know, new trees will grow to replace them, but it won't be the same. But again, it's that thing of yes, we lost things and they will never come back. But new things can come. We can build, and it won't be the same. And that loss is still painful and difficult. But it is not the end. And I think that is the the maxim against despair. You know, yes, things can be terrible and you can lose things that you can never get back. But it is not the end. Do not despair. Rebuild, remake, do something new. And again, I think that is very, very important to to, to, to Tolkien's general things. And again, I imagine probably his experience in World War One and, and general life experiences as well would have had a big impact on that. I think Tolkien is, again, I think, I think that thing, as Lewis said, good people understand both good and evil. I think Tolkien is very understanding of why people fall, of why people fail. Um, and I think the perfect example of this is um, in the uh, appendices, actually, um, when Arwen is talking to Aragorn as he is dying, and she is absolutely grief-stricken. Um, and she says, I now understand why your ancestors, the Numenorians, became so obsessed with escaping from death. Um, until now, I always just thought they were fools and greedy people. Now I understand. Because, yeah death losing your loved ones whether that be because you're dying or because they're dying is so so hard to bear and again i think that is you know again in a lot of these weird random things you know people would again just be seeking immortality because they're evil and want to live forever um but no in tolkien again even in just in the appendices um it is understood why they would want to do that it is understood their fears and it is it is not made right um, and it is still, you know, sad and 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 bad that they that they are like that, but it is understandable. And and again and again that is shown. You know, the fools are understandable. The 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 way in which pride, fear, and envy can can drive these things is not seen again as good, but it is seen as forgivable. Um, 
again, probably some Catholicness there. Um, but I, I, I do think it's really important. I, I, I do think that's, you know, one of those Catholic um, doctrines that, yeah, no, I think I think is generally applicable. Um, that, yeah, people do fail, people do screw up. And, you know, yes, that's not good. Um, but they shouldn't be written off. You know, they shouldn't be treated as if they can never be good. They can never do anything good. Um, that they are just evil people now. No, it, it's not that simple. Uh, you can always choose at any point, no matter how deeply you have screwed up, no matter how deeply you've committed to evil um, or any of these things, you can always choose to start doing good. And that will always be a good choice to do. And people may not forgive you. People may still be angry at you. You know, you may still suffer consequences of your actions, but you can still do that. Um, and that would still be good. Um, and again, you know, multiple people, whether it be Saruman or Denethor or Grimer, they are not necessarily forgiven, but again, people, especially Gandalf, often say things about like, do not think too harshly of them. You know, they they were in a very difficult situation and they fell and that's bad, um, but it's understandable. You know, I understand the reasons why they did it. Um, and yeah, I think that is, again, a really important aspect of Tolkien. He understands a lot of these things. Um, people are not caricatures. People are not just like monsters who just do evil for evil's sake. Even, again, again, imitators would not have you realize this. Imitators would not have you realize how complicated Sauron is as a person, because yes, he is absolutely evil. And yes, in The Lord of the Rings, admittedly, it doesn't get explored too much. But especially if you read the Silmarillion, you're like, oh, there's a lot going on here. Um, and there's a lot in the ways in which, again, it's that possessiveness, that belief that, no, I am right and I can make things better, and so I should get to decide what happens. That drives people like Sauron, and indeed various other figures, Saruman as well, to try and do stuff that ends up being evil. Saruman uses as his argument for why they should use the ring and what they should do is that they cannot defeat Sauron, and so they should join him and then, you know, maybe try and overthrow him later. Um, and whether or not that was ever realistic of, of being able to overthrow Sauron in the future, you know, the point is that he is not just saying, I'm evil now. He's saying, no, I have come to greater understanding, which makes me think this. Um, you know, you people are foolish to try and resist this. It's not going to work. Um, we can, you know, recreate uh, the world. You know, we can recreate society to be uh, uh, better. We can control things. We can make sure that, you know, things are good. Um, and Saruman especially has a very persuasive voice, which he uses you know, to convince people of things that he says, um, and even the likes of, of Theoden and and uh, all kinds of other, you know, impressive people are swayed by this sometimes. Um, even in the aftermath of the Battle of Helm's Deep, when they go to Isengard to confront Saruman, Saruman seems to be on the precipice of convincing Theoden that he should ally with Saruman, um, despite everything that happens. And Again, a wonderful example of evil paying back to evil and also of the importance of compassion and valuing other people. What snaps Theoden out of that is the deaths of his people, the deaths of people that he knew at Helm's Deep and the deaths of his people um, throughout Rohan who were attacked by uh, Urak-hai and, and, and Saruman's other forces. And that compassion, that compassion for others of other people and um, the people, you know, throughout the world, not just, you know, you or your family or any of these things separates a lot of the good people from a lot of the evil people. Good people are not willing to sacrifice others for their own gain is I think another another big point in uh, in Lord of the Rings. 
Yeah. One more one in the subject of, of forgiveness and, and, and understanding. Um, when they go to the Black Gate, they go with a large host of forces of Rohan and Gondor. But the closer they get, the more clear it gets that a lot of people are terrified. In fact, basically everyone's terrified. It's just some are more, you know, afraid than others uh, or less able to cope with their fear. And Aragorn turns to them and says, you can go. Like, you do not need to be here. I am not commanding any of you to be here if you cannot. And while there is no great honour in leaving at this stage, it is understandable. And if you wish perhaps to still be of use, you could go and try and retake this other fort that uh, Gondor lost before the fighting at Minas Tirith. And that might be good, but you can also just return home. Um, you do not have to come with us. We understand. And some turn back and some go and, and, and relieve that fortress. And others are inspired by these words and resolve to stay and fight. That's not what would happen in a lot of things. A lot of things would shame people who can't take it and shame people who 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 who, who are afraid and, and, and turn back and stuff. But again, Tolkien understands. Tolkien understands that fear and, and, and doesn't, you know, to be that heroic is is very impressive and good. But that's not you don't need to do that to still do good. So again, I think it's very important understanding of of people's limits, of people's abilities. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot more I can say about Tolkien. There is so much more I can say about Tolkien. But what I've tried to do, in case uh, there may be another episode tumps sometime, uh, is stick <laughs> mostly to things within the Lord of the Rings and uh, with Tolkien's sort of general themes rather than sort of anything too specific and detailed about plots and stuff that I find interesting. Um, but yeah, <laughs> there's, there's just, again, like I say, there's so many amazing things in Tolkien's works generally. I'll have to talk to you sometime about the, um, uh, the making of Middle-earth series. Yeah. Um, oh, I've got one of those. I've got, I've got all of them, and it is absolutely wild to read these incredibly long things and see how the story developed and, and what ideas like were always there and what ideas came about later. It's, it's, it's fascinating. What it is, it's fascinating. Because I've, I've inherited all of my Tolkien stuff, basically. I, when I, I got a special interest in it when I was like, I don't know, fourteen or something, and spent so much money getting all of them off Amazon. Is fourteen just like? the age that people get into Lord of the Rings because I'm pretty sure that's when I started reading it as well. I the thing is I don't actually <laughs> remember how old I was to be fair. I think I might have been younger. I might have been yeah I might have been a little bit younger. I'm not sure. It was in secondary school for sure. Yeah. But I'm not sure exactly when. Um, I know anyway. I read the I know I read the last book and a half basically. So like half of the two towers and basically the whole of Return of the King on a weekend trip to Berlin during our GCSE history course. That's pretty fun. That's pretty fun. <laughs> I um, had a lot of time to spare because I wake up really early and we had a very long... We did not have a very long bus ride. We took a plane that time. Oh, God. Um, I must have done a lot of reading in the evenings. But so, I, I wake yeah. up at, like, 6am, so... And then, yeah, when you're an hour ahead, that then turns into, like, 5am. <laughs> Fair, but fair. um but yeah i was doing a lot of reading on this school trip and managed to finish the last book and a half in like a three-day period so oh so valid so valid well yeah i mean that does sound very fun um yes and, i mean i get it i get it like it sounds yeah <laughs> and i i have done not quite the same but similar things um yeah so i do i do very much uh, appreciate what you're going for um it is it is bingeable it's not advisable to binge read it but you can <laughs> all right yeah so no i mean that's Tolkien, and i think he's amazing and i am sure you may well be hearing from me again about Tolkien uh in some more specific area uh, and, and like i want to be clear 
there's lots of stuff that I haven't talked about with Tolkien and, and, and you know, some of it is not so great. Um, and I am very much aware of this. This is, you know, my opinion and my perspective on things based on, you know, my own readings and also my discussions with other people about it. But obviously, you know, there can absolutely be gaps and flaws and all of those stuff in that. But I hope you enjoyed it anyway, because yes. I think one of the most- I've had a great time. Detailed writers there ever has been. Just crazy. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Yeah, goodbye. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you've made it all the way to the end, congrats! You're officially much stronger than half of our friends. If you're enjoying listening to this podcast, please subscribe so you get notified when we update, or sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash hey underscore I underscore like, where you have a direct line to us, the creators. You can also follow us on Tumblr at hey I like, which is all lowercase. That's all for now. See you next time on Hey I Like.